Let's pray together, church. Father, again, we want to stay aware of how much we already owe you, how many things we already have to be grateful for. We have many needs, that's true. But along with our needs, we have so much more already to thank you for. A home in heaven, a new name, a new identity purchased through the life of Jesus. The confidence, Lord, that we can speak to you now in prayer. And my words aren't simply going out into the air. You're listening, not because I deserve it, but because you're good. And you've made tremendous sacrifices so that you can listen to your children and you're wise and kind and good enough to answer in the way that is best at the best time. So we want to ask your blessing as we open your word, change our hearts and minds and thinking. And if there's a single person here who doesn't truly know Jesus, I pray that today is the day they would love and trust him. In his name I pray. Well, good morning. Welcome back. Those of you who are here in the room, it's wonderful to see you even in these strange conditions. I keep calling them strange because they're just strangerer and strangerer. It's just so odd that we've learned to live this way, but your character, your patience, your kindness, your goodness through all of it have been very, very encouraging to me. I'd like you to open your Bibles again in 1 Peter chapter 5. I broke some of the preaching rules I was taught and I took a single sermon and made it into a three-part series. Hopefully that is helpful. And today I want to talk to you about the war that we're actually in. The Bible says in several places, it's a theme that runs all the way through it, that the world we live in and see, the world around us, the material world, like your body, this table, this Bible I can hold in my hand, the camera in front of me, the chair beneath you, that is part of reality, but there is a hidden, unseen spiritual reality behind the world we can see and experience through our senses. The difficulty and the suffering of this time has made many people who were entirely content to live in the material world alone and consider the material world alone, many people have been forced by their need to look for spiritual answers. One by one, things that we thought we could trust with our lives in the material world have been exposed as frail idols. We thought if we had sufficient education, sufficient science, sufficient knowledge, we would be safe and we would be whole, and it's not true. It never has been. So I'm choosing through an act of will to adjust my attitude and to consider that along with all that we've lost and all that we've suffered, there are tremendous opportunities in all this suffering because it is suffering that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 5. And when I come to my passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter is going to begin speaking of a real being in the world that the world has made seem fictitious and mythical and cartoonish. He's going to speak of the devil as if it were the most natural thing in the world. He's going to remind his readers that the very real suffering they're going through because they were under persecution in the ancient Roman Empire for their Christian faith, he's going to remind them that behind that physical reality is a spiritual reality. 
and he invited them, and this was last week's sermon, in their time of suffering to get humble, to be humble toward each other, and to get low and humble themselves beneath God's hand, and to throw all their anxieties on him. 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. That's the first part of going through suffering. When pressure is crushing you, counterinstinctively, the Bible tells you not to stand up and fight back, but to get low and to take shelter under God's hand by throwing all your anxiety and all your worry on Him. And I told you last week, my own lifelong battle with anxieties and fears and how I've learned and how I'm very much learning, especially now, to take the things that are on my shoulders and crushing me and throw them instead into God's hands. That's the first part. If you struggle with anxiety and fear, as so many of us do, you might want to go back and look at last week's message. But Peter's not done. In verse 8, in the most natural, of course, you know this kind of language, he's going to be talking to them about their adversary, the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says to suffering Christians like us, Suffering's greater than our own, actually. He says to them, and 2,000 years later to us, what we should do. First, he says, throw your anxieties on God. And then, verse 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And there, in the most natural, almost casual way, almost in passing, Peter says, once you throw your burdens on God, get serious. And that's really the heart of this message. He is telling them, get, and he is telling us, get serious about your spiritual adversary. There is a devil in the world. He behaves in this way. He stalks and prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour seeking to do someone total, complete harm, to completely devastate someone, he is your adversary, the devil. And that word again, devil, is, almost makes people laugh. One of the greatest lies that the devil told people in the West, on this side of the world, in our highly educated, technology-driven world, one of the greatest lies that Satan has foisted on our side of the world is that he does not exist at all. Because the most dangerous enemy to you is the one that you do not believe exists. If you are forewarned, you really are forearmed. If you know that someone seeks your harm, you are much better prepared mentally and physically to stand against that threat. But if he doesn't exist at all, then there's nothing to worry about. There's no precautions needed. And the main thing that the devil does is lie. And I know that because of the name he is given here. It says, your adversary, the devil. And that word wasn't translated in your New Testament because it's referring to an actual being. The devil is not God's exact counterpart. Some people believe that, that the devil is in all places at all times as God is, and that's not true. The Bible explains that the devil is an angel 
made to love and worship and serve God as all angels were, but he was filled with pride, tried to take God's place, was decisively defeated, and has hated God and the crown of his creation, human beings like ourselves, ever since. And the main weapon in his arsenal is to lie. You ever been lied to? Sometimes for years before you discover the lie. I get lied to all the time. Maybe you do as well. I routinely have people calling me on my cell phone and lying to me. I don't know if this has happened to anyone else. It is very often the Social Security Administration that calls me and lies to me. I see from the laughter this has happened to someone besides me. It says, sounds something like this. There is a long pause while the computers connect and then he says, Mr., and then he pauses because he realizes in that moment he's not quite sure how to pronounce my name, but he usually gets it about half right and says, I am calling from the Social uh, Security Administration or from the Internal Revenue Service. It varies. They take turns. And they say, we have a warrant for your arrest, and we need you to pay and pay now or the law is coming in all of its fearsome fury for you to take you away. So I heard about 20 of these voicemails, and one day I decided to call him back. And he said, I'm, I think he actually said Jones. I'm Agent Jones with the Internal Revenue Service. And I said, sir, I received your message. I want to thank you for the warning. I want to tell you two things. I have a lot of money, and I don't want any trouble. So please tell me how much money you need and how to send it to you. I'll do it right now. And there was a very long pause and then he said something very unkind about me and my family. And I told him I was shocked by such language from a civil servant. And then he said something even meaner, and then he hung up. He might have detected my sarcasm, I'm not sure. That's one way that people call me on my phone to lie to me. Does that happen to anybody else? Don't call them back. That was a stupid thing to do, okay? I'm just telling you what happened. I'm not giving a, a recommendation. I got a much better and much more flattering scam about a year ago. It said that it was from a church in England, and what it said was, Pastor Bruce, we have observed your ministry carefully online, and we are super impressed with you and everything you do. We want you to come to London, England, and basically start a revival. We know you're the guy for it. If you'll come, this whole country will probably get saved. Everything's ready. We're going to pay you thousands of dollars. Just send us an email back, and we'll get the ball rolling. Well, that's not a threat. That's flattery. And I knew immediately that they either had the wrong guy or it was a scam, but there were some really distinctive things in this email, including a very odd name for the church and a very odd name of the person writing to me. So I Googled it. I Googled those names. And I was so happy to find that a fellow pastor actually bought into that scam, and he told the whole story. Suffice it to say, by the time he was over, not only, it was over, not only did he not go to London, he was out about $1,500. All of it was lies. Why am I telling you this? Because this is exactly how your enemy, the devil, works. Whether he lies to flatter and deceive and entice you, or more frequently in my case, he lies to denigrate you, 
to accuse you and to make you hopeless. Lying is all he does. It is his chief and favorite tactic. It is how he captures people's souls and minds and keeps them far from God. Maybe you felt his attack. Maybe even though you're a Christian, you have thought to yourself after falling once again into sin that this time there is no hope for you. Maybe you've thought to yourself or even told yourself that you're worthless or second class, that it's hopeless, that God may be faithful and kind and merciful to others, as the pastor is always saying, but not to you because you're special in a bad way and God's promises won't apply in your case because you've abused grace for far too long. I want to tell you something that God showed me when we were missionaries and going through a dark valley. You may be discouraged for perfectly understandable reasons. You may be exhausted. You may be hungry. In other words, your discouragement may be part of just your human frailty, or it might be spiritual, and it's probably both, but it is never your heavenly Father that speaks to you in those accusatory terms. The word devil literally means slanderer. He's a liar by nature. His very character, as I'm going to show you, is that of a liar. His tactic and his end goal ultimately is always to destroy, whether he begins with enticement and flattery to make you think that you're all that and you can rely on yourself and this time you've learned enough and this time you'll be strong enough and then when you fall in your self-reliance, he'll turn in that moment and tell you you're worthless, you're the same old gal, you're the same old boy you've always been. God could never love and forgive and redeem and have a purpose for someone like you and he keeps you on that seesaw telling you, you've got it, you can do it, and when you fail, telling you you're worthless, you've done it again. He will lie to you all your life because his very name here, devil, means slanderer. And the devil, someone said years ago, my pastor taught me this, is one who accuses people to God and God to people. In times of suffering, the devil tells people he has forgotten you and he has forsaken you. And if you want to see the devil accusing people to God, you could read the book of Job where the devil goes into the presence of God and says to him, the only reason Job loves you is because you're good to him. Nobody really loves you like he pretends to. Take his stuff away and see what he does. He's filled with hatred. He's filled with lies. It's all he does. Let me show you his character quickly before we listen to Peter. Look in John chapter 8. Listen to Jesus. John chapter 8. Jesus is standing in front of people who hate him. And he's putting them at the crossroads, telling them that they're either going to have to believe him or what they're going to end up doing and what they're currently doing is believing the devil. John 8, verse 43. Everybody have it? If you're online, nod at me with an emoji, please, if you have it. John 8, verse 43. Look, this is Jesus speaking. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil the slanderer, the accuser. That's what that word means. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Listen, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. There it is. Peter says that you need to be serious about your spiritual adversary. Look back at 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. In other words, you've cast your burdens on God, good, but you're not done. You need to be clear-headed. You need to be vigilant because you have an enemy in the world, an adversary called the devil, the accuser, the slanderer, and what he is doing is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How do you deal with him? Verse 9 tells you, resist him firm in your faith. Please note, if you're a Bible underliner or a note taker, please take careful note of verse 9. The devil, your adversary, is lying. He is accusing. He is always prowling. He seeks to do people harm. He is at heart an accuser and a destroyer. Jesus will say elsewhere in the Gospel of John that he has come to steal and kill and destroy, and the way to deal with him is in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Please note that. There are other places in the Bible where you're told, for instance, to flee from sexual sin. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lusts. He never says to run from the devil. The Bible always says the same thing about the devil. Resist him. Literally in Greek, stand against him. How in the world could you possibly do that? You seem so frail and so ignorant by comparison. If this is your adversary who prowls in the world seeking to gulp people down to do them harm, who has murder in his heart, whose very character is the character of a liar, how do you resist him? You resist him by believing God. You resist him by trusting Jesus who is the truth and always tells the truth. The nature of spiritual warfare is not physical. It occurs in the human mind when you choose exactly who you're going to believe. And if you're going to believe God, you have to be calm first, you have to be vigilant, and then you have to hear the voice of the shepherd over the, voice, over the roar of the lion and trust God and trust his character instead of this slanderer and this accuser. Hold your place and look at another place with me in the Bible in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the Apostle Paul now, he gives you different insight into the character of the adversary, the devil. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Let me give you the context. Paul is writing to a different church. This church has been infected by Judaizing teaching, meaning false teachers have come in right behind Paul and they've essentially said, you heard about Jesus, that's great. Keep believing in Jesus, keep trusting Jesus, but also keep the law of Moses or you can't really be saved. 
And they said, we're better apostles than Paul. Paul here refers to them somewhat mockingly as the super apostles. They said to the Corinthians, you can tell who has the truth because if you'll notice, Paul's always in prison. Paul was always being persecuted. Paul's always being beaten. You notice how good our lives are. Clearly, God is blessing us, and God is judging him. Keep the law of Moses. Read your Old Testament. Keep those laws. That's how you please God. And I want you to hear Paul's warning because he's going to tell them that is deception. It's a lie, and it doesn't come from mere men. It actually comes from your adversary, the devil. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Paul said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to who? To Christ. See, this is how the devil works. If the lie is crass and big and bold, and if that'll work, that's what he'll do. But so much more frequently, the best kinds of law lies, the ones that draw us in and do us real harm, are not big, scandalous, bold, red letters lies. They're little tangents that are 3% off of the truth and set you off in a slightly different course. And given enough time, you've gone a long way away from a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. Look in verse 14 in the same chapter. I'm sorry, from verse 13, speaking of these false teachers, Paul wrote, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. Notice, that's a lie, that's a deception. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Well, which is it? Is he a roaring lion or an angel of light? He's really a roaring lion. Did you notice the verb? He disguises himself as an angel of light. Very few people will actually be victimized by someone who announces their intentions. If you can feel the threat coming, if, you, if it has been announced to you that someone wants to take all your money or take your life, then you can take necessary precautions. The devil is smarter than that. He's wilier than that. He will continually lie to you whether to flatter you and make you self-reliant or to make you feel worthless when you sin. The battle is always in this, to trust God's promises instead of believing the devil's threats. That roaring lion is meant only to intimidate you. I don't know how much the apostle Peter knew about lions, but I did a little reading about lions this week just to know what they were like. And because people are watching this online, a dear friend far from here sent me a text message and told me something rather fascinating. A lion's roar at top volume can be heard five miles away. If you heard a lion roaring down the block, what might you do? Would that get your attention? See, here's what I learned about lions. They roar to mark territory and intimidate the opponents once they're seen. What a lion wants to do every day is kill. That's where Jesus and Peter's Paul's connects. Jesus said he's a murderer at heart. 
Peter said he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour. What the devil wants to do every day is bring spiritual death. But a lion's a hunter. If he's sneaking up on someone, he's not going to roar. He's just going to attack, and it's going to be over. But if the prey is sighted, if the prey sees the lion coming, then comes the roar, because we've all heard that we have this instinctive reaction to either fight, fight or flight, they call it. Did you know there's a third option, which many people suffer from? Freeze. I've never faced a lion, thankfully, but I've been surprised by a dog, and I've been very disappointed to discover that I'm actually rooted to the spot. I can't move. I should be doing something productive to get myself out of danger, like climbing the tree nearby, but I can't move. That's the point. He actually seeks to do harm by intimidation, by creating fear in you. The truth of the Scripture is this. The devil is dangerous, but God is trustworthy. All of His promises are true. He actually has defeated sin. He actually has defeated the devil. He actually has given you a new name. He ha has actually placed you inside His family. And the temptation is going to be always to believe the roar and to believe the threats rather than to believe your heavenly Father. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's what you have to do. You have to resist him, Peter said, firm in your faith. If you don't catch anything else I say today, simply catch this. The heart of the spiritual battle is not a macho attitude. It's not seeing a demon behind every bush. It's not figuring out every deceit. It is simply this. When you are confronted with spiritual thoughts to believe God instead of anyone else, including yourself. That's why Peter said, firm in your faith. This makes all the difference. The word faith really has two ways we can understand it. We have a faith. We're Christians. There are a few things that God has taught us and shown to us are true. That is our faith, but the way we live that message is by trusting the one who spoke it. And if I could get just really personal and pastoral here for a second. This thing that we're going through as a pandemic, as individuals, as families, is hard every day because you're choosing whether to believe lies or truth. God said that you would never be left or forsaken. God said that he would supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. God said that you have a future and a hope. God said that you are actually his child. God said that when you speak to him in the name of Jesus who died for you, he listens. God told you that your identity is not found in your achievement or your success or your bank balance. He has told you that your identity was actually remade in Christ. When Christ lived and died and rose again in your place, all of that happened for your sake so that you could be saved and have a new name, a new purpose, a new identity, and new security. And now all of those things in a new way are being tested. 
because none of us have ever been through anything like this. And we know that there are many voices trying to make sense of this pandemic, and some of those voices have admittedly lied to us. We've had people who we thought were trustworthy say two or three months later, admit that they misled us, they lied to us in the beginning because they thought we couldn't handle the truth. Well, if you lose trust in leaders, if you, trust, if you lose trust in institutions, people who have never been through that experience may feel like the whole world has been shaken. Who can you trust? You can trust your heavenly Father who looked across history and saw you lost in sin, dying without him, and for the sake of his own good glory, he sent his son to die on the cross and has made you exceedingly great and precious promises and has literally staked his name and his reputation on this simple achievement that he will not lose you and that when you let go of him, he will hold you fast and that your salvation will not depend upon your achievement or your improved behavior or your moral reformation. No, many of those things will come as a result of following Jesus, but what will make you secure is the death of the good shepherd who goes forward to meet the wolf, goes forward to meet death, takes all of its punishment on the cross, and then rises again to show that he won over all of it. That's the truth. And if you lose sight of that and you put your eyes on institutions and on men, including the man who's talking to you, no wonder you feel shaken. The battle every day is to remember that the devil is dangerous, but God is trustworthy. And then in verse 9, and I'm done, Peter tells you something else. Resist him firm in your faith, and there's the heart of the battle to believe God instead of anyone else. Then he says, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You resist the devil by believing God, by listening to your Father instead of the devil's lies. And verse 9 tells you something else that has been very hard for us as Americans. Number two, you adjust your expectations on suffering. What do I mean by that? I only want to take about five more minutes, but let me beg for your attention and your understanding on what I'm going to say next. I grew up outside of this country. In fact, when I was a second grader and later, later a seventh grader, when my parents came back from Mexico where I grew up, I was a very, very strange little American kid because I looked like this, but I thought like the little Mexican boy I grew up being. For instance, I was really excited that I had sliced bologna for lunch in the United States of America. Such did not exist when I was growing up as a little boy in Mexico. The United States was a whole new world to me. And because I spent most of my life outside of this country, I can tell you sincerely that I love it in a special way because I have a point of reference. So please don't misunderstand what I'm going to tell you next. One of the reasons that this crisis has been harder on Americans, it seems, and we're handling it by many other points of reference around the world worse than most other countries is because we're not that used to suffering. 
For many, many decades, we had almost unprecedented growth and prosperity, and life got better year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. The American dream would be that you could make your own way and leave it better for your kids than you found it. And for a long, long time, that was almost a given. And then all this happened. And I want you to read again verse 9 through that lens. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This isn't a criticism, it's just an observation. I've been in touch with our missionaries scattered around the world, some of them in incredibly difficult places. And according to them, those persecuted people are just handling it better than we are. One congregation that we've literally kept from starving because they live in an economy where if you don't work for a week, you're literally starving. That congregation has banded together and pooled all of their resources to help each other physically, literally survive the pandemic. The offerings that we have sent have been a tremendous blessing to them. You're literally keeping hundreds of people from starving, but compared to the way some of us are reacting to this pandemic, they're pretty calm. You know why? Because life was always hard. This is extra hard for them, but they, unlike us, have grown accustomed to hardships. Works kind of like this. When I was eight years old growing up in Mexico, my dad went to preach in central Mexico, and we had the misfortune of going into someone's home that had a little tradition that the five brothers, I think it was, I don't remember because they hit me in the head so many times, but I think it was five brothers, had a little tradition that after lunch they would box. And I was twice their size. One of the benefits usually of being a gringo in Mexico is you're a little bigger than most of your classmates. And they said, would your son like to box, Pastor Garner? And I looked at him and said, these are little squirts. I can handle these guys. And yes, I asked myself a deadly question, which is this, how hard could it be? As it turns out, it could be very, very hard. There for a while, I thought I was fighting all five brothers at once because they were hitting me from every angle. There were so many boxing gloves headed toward my body and face, I thought for sure I had to be fighting more than one person at a time. Why did I get so beat up? My expectations. I thought it was easy. Listen, if something that comes out of this pandemic is to remind you how frail you are, how shaky business really is, how quickly health can be lost, how precious the blessings that God has provided really are. If this makes us more humble and more grateful, we'll be better through it because Peter said this same suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. What we're going through, in other words, it's awful, but everyone goes through it. And look what God does through it. Verse 10, and this brings us into next week's passage. After you have suffered a little while. In other words, this is awful, but it's normal. We just forgot for a while that life actually can be very difficult. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal and glory in Christ will himself, God himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'll explain it to you more carefully next week, but you can depend on verse 10. You can depend that after a season of suffering, God himself, who really is the God of all grace, 
who really did call you to his eternal glory, that same God who loved you and sent his son for you will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. We will be better through this if we keep believing God rather than the devil, rather than ourselves. You keep your own counsel. You'll be as depressed and fearful, as angry as the news cares to make you. Let me say that again, friends, and I'm done. The nature of anxiety is to keep your own counsel, to constantly ruminate in your own mind things in your mind that are the worst possible thing that can happen to you. You keep doing that, you'll put all the burdens of the world on your own shoulders instead of casting them on God. You keep doing that, you'll believe all the worst of the devil's lies, that you're worthless, that it's hopeless, that there's no future, that all is lost, that the country is shot, that you might as well give up, that there's no point in going on. Whatever it sounds like in your mind, I know what it sounds like in mine, whatever those accusations sound like, you start believing those in keeping with your own counsel or listening to some other talking human head who's just as fearful and just as angry as you are, you'll be hopeless and you'll lose sight of the shepherd. But if I could paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, he said that if a Christian continually turns to Christ, eventually the devil will leave you alone because he'll discover that he's really just like a big black dog that drives the sheep back to the good shepherd. So when you hear these things, turn to him and say, Father, I'm anxious, I'm afraid. Here are my burdens. I've heard in my own mind or in the voices and the emails and the messages from others that there's no hope, that I'm worthless, that I might as well give up, that there's no point in going on, but I've read your word. I've heard your voice. I know you've given me faith to trust you, so I'm going to believe you instead, and I'm going to hang on in this season of suffering until you yourself come to me and make me better and stronger. The way to go and go through suffering is to not let a defeated enemy scare you. Jesus already beat the devil. The battle rages, but it's not in doubt. Jesus already won. The back of the book tells you that. You can go and grow through suffering by not letting the accuser, the liar, scare you. Let's pray. If you've had an anxious and fearful and maybe angry week, could I just give you a moment to tell your father about it? Father, we want to obey you and cast our anxieties on you. And I want to ask you for my brothers and sisters those who have come and those who will see this online. Make us turn to you and believe you, Jesus, because you're always telling us the truth. You are truth. And the accuser, he only and always lies. And he hates you and he hates us and he would have us defeated and frightened and he would intimidate us with empty threats that he cannot fulfill because you will keep us safe. And as your word says, the one that is within us is greater than the one in the world. So help us trust you. Help us act like Christians this week. When the lion roars, let us run to the good shepherd and rest and continue obeying. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.